Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. All right, welcome back, podcast listeners. This is Know Thyself. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong. We're continuing our series on the worst people ever to inhabit or to infest this planet. I want to thank you for the reception my Columbus episode received. I have to confess, I had a little trepidation throwing Columbus under the bus, calling him out as the worst human, the ninth worst human being who ever walked the face of this planet. I expected a little bit of pushback on that. And frankly, if I would have had a little pushback, I probably would have folded up like a cheap suit, because really, Columbus's evil such as it was, was more of a greedy, brutal, and incompetent form of evil. Not to say it's much better, but when you look at his life, you almost feel sorry for the guy. It kind of seems to me he had no idea what he was doing a whole lot of the time. He had no idea when he set out that he was going to discover an entirely new world. He thought the world was much smaller than it was, that it was pear-shaped. And I think right up to his dying day, he thought he'd found the western side of the Indian subcontinent. So kind of bumbled his way into that, and he just as easily could have sailed into oblivion as to the new world. I mean, I know I've heard that he's this excellent navigator, and I have to take people's word for it. He sailed by dead reckoning. But I think that might have been because he couldn't figure out the instrumentation or didn't want to learn it. He kind of screwed up his governorship. He ends up getting taken back to Ferdinand and Isabella in chains because he's such a brute, such a savage, such a single-minded, gold-digging, money-grubbing, self-important jerk. And really, it's pretty apparent to me that by the end of his life, he's kind of a floating joke. I mean, here he is, the Admiral of the Seas. <laughs> his title has been given by Ferdinand and Isabella, the Admiral of the Seas. And yet, when this Admiral of the Seas attempts to port his ships, nobody will let him dock. They won't even want him in their harbors. They ask him to just keep sailing on. Ferdinand and Isabella won't even grant him a conference or an audience. So here he is going on these other missions, sailing around the ocean like Don Quixote, thinking he's the most important person on the planet, sending off missives, to Ferdinand and Isabella, as if they're hanging on his every word, and who knows if they even read them or not. I mean, Columbus seems like that guy to me. The guy that nobody likes his Facebook posts, nobody upvotes his Reddit posts. Like I say, you almost feel sorry for him, but then you have to think about all the parents that he took from their children, all the children that he killed, all the people enslaved, all the bodies he threw over the side of his ship because they were taking up space when they died in their horrible conditions as he sailed them off to slavery. And you have to think, sorry, you deserve it. It's hard to feel sorry for somebody like that. He's a dreadful specimen of humanity. So yeah, I'm going to stick with my opinion. Ninth worst person who ever walked the face of this earth. And I hope I can do that relatively unscathed. Although Columbus Day is coming, so who knows? So it's now time to leave Columbus behind and to talk about the eighth and seventh worst people who ever walked the face of the earth. And these two are real misanthropes. I mean, I am bringing to you two people who by any criteria you care to mention, including Dr. Todd Calder's criteria of evil, were very, very evil human beings. I was going to try to bring you three, but I just don't know if you could take it. I mean, this pair of sick miscreants is about enough. These are vile, perverse people. And let me just say this, if these two had held more power, if the scope of their depravity had not been limited to their little petty fiefdoms, 
They would have ranked higher on this list. So please understand, these are very bad people. Their actions are not in any way pleasant to hear. And this is certainly not the kind of information you want to share with your children. So why am I combining eight and seven, you might ask? Because they are two peas in a pod. They really are. This is the Laurel and Hardy of evil. Actually, it's more like two serpents in a nest. They're just so alike in so many ways that matter. So now it's my great displeasure to introduce you to two pure, unadulterated sadists. Daria Saltikova, also known as the Salty Chica, and her predecessor and her superior in all things evil, and who knows, maybe a mentor of sorts, Elizabeth Bathory. Let's start with Daria Saltikova, also known as the Salty Chica. You'll hear me refer to her by both because she was known even in Russia as the Salty Chica. She was a Russian countess, born Daria Ivanova into a fairly well-known, fairly well-connected noble family. We don't know the date exactly of her birth, we don't know the place of her birth, but we do know that it was in Russia. And we also don't know much about her childhood, since she was born into a noble family, she would have had all the wealth and privilege that that entailed. But again, it wasn't one of the top noble families, but when she got married, apparently she was quite a beauty, she got married to a man named Gleb Saltikov. And the Saltikovs were a very powerful, very well-connected family. Rich, rich, rich. This marriage seems to have been a few notches up on the social ladder for Darya Ivanova. Just to give you an idea about the reputation of the Saltikov family, one of Gleb's nephews actually became a field marshal, the head of the entire Russian army, and later in life a teacher to the czars themselves. She eventually had two sons with Gleb. Theodore was born in 1750 and Nicholas sometime after that, and while she was married, no one noticed anything very special about her. She just seemed to be gloomy most of the time, kind of one of those morose, brooding, pessimistic people. She was also very pious, and she donated quite a bit of her money to churches and monasteries. So again, not that much to set her apart from other negative, churchy people. Something then happened to Gleb, and we don't know exactly what it was. I, of course, am suspicious since I can't find out how he died, but Gleb died when she was still very young. She was widowed by the age of 26. I don't really know how old he was either. I get the idea that he was older. So she's left a young widow with two young sons. And of course, she's alone having to care for them in the estate, and so that's kind of bad. But she's not left without some comfort during this trial, because combining her wealth with the Saltikov wealth, she becomes the richest widow in all of Moscow. Get this, she has an estate that's so vast it comes with 600 serfs. Serfs were tied to the land in that day, and so when she inherited the estate, she inherited these servants. And not only did she have this huge property outside of Moscow, she had excellent real estate right within the city of Moscow also. So very powerful and very rich widow. And so with all that, she was only lacking one thing. I guess two things. She was lacking a conscience, but also she was lacking love. So she began a torrid, passionate affair with this sexy poet man named Nikolay. And that affair seems to really have affected her. We don't know much about her relationship with her husband, Gleb. But some of those arranged marriages weren't all that joyful. So when she fell, she fell hard for Nikolay. And the relationship seems to have really lifted her spirits. She didn't sit around so pessimistic, so gloomy. She'd smile sometimes. She'd even crack a joke. People could really tell she was more full of life. And as far as we know, this might have been the happiest she ever was. So, of course, that made what happened afterward all the harder to bear, I'm sure. So, it's hard for us to comprehend this, but Salty Chica, Daria Saltikova, was considered a little over the hill by the time she started her affair with Nikolay. I mean, it's crazy to think that somebody who's not even 30 yet could be considered older, but that's how it was. And she found out that while she was so madly in love with Nikolay, he also had fallen for a much younger woman. 
And not only that, but he told her that they had secretly been married in a church and he was breaking off his affair with Daria. She flew into a rage. She lost it. She lost whatever joy had come into her life with Nikolai. She attacked him physically, tried to kill him with her bare hands. He had to flee for his life. So first he fled to a family property in Moscow, and then with his young bride he was spirited away somewhere else, so out of Saltykova's reach. She was furious. It was really good for Nikolai that he got away for a couple of reasons. One is he didn't get killed. The second reason is, even worse than getting killed, he would have been married to Daria Saltykova if he hadn't gotten away. So he got away. But she is livid. And so what was good for Nikolai the sexy poet man was very bad for Daria's servants. So this salty chica begins to take out all of her rage and to seek all of her vengeance on her servants. What a miserable coward. I mean, these brutal bullies can never handle symmetrical power relationships. So they always go after people who are helpless and have no recourse. And I'll give you one guess who her main targets were. Of course, they were women, and especially the very young women. She started to fly into rages, irrational rages, when very, very minor mistakes had been made by her servants. She would pick up a log from the fire and throw it at them, bruising them badly, sometimes injuring them, sometimes breaking bones. And as time went by, the abuse just got worse and worse. People said she would do to these poor servant girls what she wished she could do to Nicolay's young lover. And looking back now, we can't even comprehend how she could get away with this. Her abuses were almost beyond belief. It started with just more and more severe beatings. We don't know when the first deaths occurred. But she would not stop beating people. She would start beating them. And then it would seem she would just be transported by her rage, carried away by her rage, just keep beating and beating these servants. People would ask her to stop. They would suggest, hey, she's had enough, but she wouldn't stop. And at one point, again, like I said, we don't know whether it was a young woman, a child, or what, she actually killed somebody. And far from being horrified by what she had done and seeking penance, she seemed to like it. She liked it so much that she didn't just not care if she killed somebody. She wanted to inflict as much pain on them as she could. So as I said, the beatings became more and more severe. She would break bones. She caused pregnant women to miscarry. She beat an entire family when a servant would screw up. Sometimes she would kill children. Three times she killed a husband. Of course, that was inadvertent. She really targeted the young women. How could this Saltykova do this? Well, she would have them tied up, and then she would just start beating, and she wouldn't stop. Well, when you get into some of the testimony around her abuses, it's really tough to hear, and she didn't bother even to deny it. She poured boiling water on servant girls to punish them. If you've ever been burned, you know how painful that is. Even by a little curling iron or something, it's really painful. But she would pour boiling water on people. And sometimes they would die from this. She would also put people out into the Russian night. You could imagine how long a young woman would last out in a Russian winter night. None of them made it till morning. So when you hear this, you think, how could she get away with this? This is a nightmare. The servants had no way out. They were totally trapped in this condition. If they ran... They faced arrest for leaving their property, leaving their land that they had been assigned to, or starvation because nobody would hire them. They had no way to make a living. They could, and many times they did, complain to the authorities in the area. But guess what happened? If you bring up a problem, you become the problem. And so these servants who were trying to save their own life, trying to help people by reporting Daria's abuses, became themselves punished. And then they got sent back to face Saltykova's wrath. And that was just the joys 
of living in Russia at that point because it was still a feudal estate. People who belonged to the serf class belonged to the land. They couldn't go where they wanted to. They couldn't do the kind of work they wanted to. The land owned them, in a sense, and Saltykova owned the land. So they belonged to the Saltychika, body and soul. Very abused system. These were different times because the nobles at that time were considered to have the power to punish, sometimes severely, their servants. Some of the ways they punished their servants seemed like us to torture, didn't even raise an eyebrow, hardly ever got called up or in trouble for the way that they treated their serfs. Even in this brutal, oppressive, abusive system, Saltykova stood out. People knew what was going on on her estate. The rumors were out there, but nobody had the will to do anything about it. So enter a man named Imale Ilyin. This was a serf on Saltykova's estate. This man had lost three separate wives to the Saltychika. Three separate wives, one after another. He's married to a wife. She's beaten to death by the Saltychika. He marries another one after a period of grief. She too is beaten to death. And that happens again. So this is a desperate, bereaved man. And he knew that the local authorities were useless cowards. He knew they wouldn't do anything. So he and another serf risk everything. And in what I consider an act of great heroism, they run for St. Petersburg. Now that might not sound like much to go from Moscow to St. Petersburg, but you have to realize that's 450 miles across Russia. You can only imagine the privations they endured to make this journey. And eventually they end up in the court of Empress Catherine II, Catherine the Great. And Ermolay and another peasant are able to bring their complaint into the ears of the Empress. Now at this point, Catherine the Great lives up to her name because she has tried to institute reforms to stop the abuses of the nobility. She's trying to enter the modern age and in a sense to drag the Russian nobility kicking and screaming into a more modern view of things. So she has instituted reforms about the way the serfs can be treated. And she decides to try Saltykova. So she orders the College of Justice to begin an investigation regarding the torture and murder on the Saltychika's estate. And what they find is just grisly. From the time Daria Saltykova was 26, she lived with only her two young sons and then a bunch of servants on the estate. So it was only her and her very young sons. We're talking not even 10 years old yet. Her very young sons on the estate. She has a six-year reign of terror over her household. And they find evidence that she has killed as many as 150 of her serfs. And almost all of those deaths, except for three men, were women and children. So with this overwhelming, incontrovertible evidence, the unanimous testimony, Daria Saltykova is arrested. But then Catherine the Great has a problem. Because she has all of the nobility who will react very badly to her punishing a member of their class. They don't want to be told how to manage their serfs. They think that it would set a very bad precedent and there would be a generalized serf uprising. So Catherine has to proceed with caution. And again, she's brilliant with this. What does she do? Well, within 10 minutes, the investigators knew that Daria Saltykova was a brute. She was a monster. She was killing people. They didn't need to gather evidence much longer than the first few days to figure that out. But Catherine is smart. Under the auspices of an ongoing investigation, she takes six years to bring Daria Saltykova to trial. But in the meantime, no more serfs are being tortured, brutalized, and killed. So Daria Saltykova is effectively out of the picture. Her reign of terror is over. 
And Catherine can just wait six years until public sentiment and even the sentiment of the nobility, when they find out all that she has done, nobody dares stand up for Dyer Saltikova. So the Salty Chica is brought to trial, finally, six years after she's imprisoned. 1768, she faces the judge and she is convicted of 38 counts of murder. Now you say, well, she killed as many as 150 people. Well, it doesn't take that many deaths to convict somebody of being a murderer. So these were just 38 of the most easily provable, most clearly established murders that she had committed. Just 38. And we have to say at this point that even though this conviction was airtight, there was no doubt what was happening. No doubt that she was guilty. But during the entire process, Soltykova reacted with this contempt. She was absolutely convinced that she was going to be acquitted. Her whole attitude was just, get this monkey trial over with so I can get back to killing my serfs. Nobody was more surprised than she was when the guilty verdict was handed down. Now the response publicly was pretty measured, the sentence, I mean, was pretty measured. She's put up in a public square in chains with a sign around her neck saying, this woman has tortured and murdered for guess how long? One hour. Just one hour. So she is paraded publicly for one hour. People can come by and spit on her, make fun of her, mock her, torment her in any way they want. Must have been a long hour, but it was just an hour. But after that, things got real. Saltykova was sent to imprisonment for life in the cellar of a convent in Moscow. So you may think, oh, it was just a convent. What's so bad about that? She got off really easy. But you have to realize that the prisons were for the men. The women, especially the nobility, were sent to a convent. But this was no bargain. This was no bargain at all. She had only escaped death because Russia had abolished the death penalty a few years before. But I'm really not sure whether she would have chosen death or what she eventually faced because she spent the next 33 years of her life imprisoned. She was only about 32, 33 at the time, and she spent the next half of her life in prison. At first, she was kept in a windowless cell in absolute darkness. The only light she saw was when a nun would come and hand her her food with a small candle. She would then eat her food, the candle, her waste bucket, and the trays had to then be returned, and she would go back into total darkness. That lasted for years, but eventually she was allowed to go back to church. She could sit outside and listen to the sermons, but she was never allowed to set foot within the church itself. In the final years of her life, Saltykova was moved to a cell with windows. And this is where the story gets kind of heartwarming. Because there's Saltykova, after going through so much, suffering for so long, being punished for these horrible crimes that she has committed, they couldn't take the salty chica out of her. From this window, she would yell at everybody walking by. She would try to spit at them, hurl abuse at them, swear at them. Just a vile, wretched creature right up to the very end. So that's what I say is kind of heartwarming. She stuck to her guns. She stuck with what had brought her there right up to the very end. She eventually died and she's buried in the family plot next to everybody else in her family. She wasn't even denied a Christian burial. So there you have, for good reason, the eighth worst person who ever walked the face of the earth. And like I warned you, that was a pretty disturbing tale. So of course it's time to raise the ante just a little bit. We're going to the seventh worst person who ever walked this earth. If Salty Chica the Russian sadist wasn't enough for you, let me introduce you to the undisputed sovereign queen of depravity. Elizabeth Bathory. She's called by the Guinness Book of World Records the most prolific female or possibly any serial killer who ever lived. And although the exact number of her victims is unknown, there's mountains of evidence that that number was very, very high. More on those numbers later. But let me just say right here at the outset, 
Elizabeth Bathory might be the worst person who ever lived. If a tenth of the things that are ascribed to her actually occurred, and I think there's good reason to think that they did, then on her own intrinsic merits, if you judge her just by her, I was going to say character, but her lack of, whatever it is, her character, her innate malevolent potential, they just don't come any worse than Elizabeth Bathory. And really, it's only the limit of her reach, like I said earlier, that keeps her down in seventh place. She could make number one by almost any other criteria. So again, let me just give you a little warning. Elizabeth Bathory is a very evil woman, and we're not going to flinch when we present her litany of outrages. Now, before we begin the tale of Elizabeth Bathory, also known as Bloodbath or the Blood Countess, before we begin that tale in earnest, I want to just talk about five realities of the time and place in which she lived. She lived in Hungary and owned land in Transylvania in the late 1500s, so about 150 years before the Salty Chica. And at that time, Hungary and Transylvania were the borderlands between Christian Europe and the Muslim Ottoman Empire. So this was a place that was in a state of perpetual warfare. The Hungarians at the time were ruled by an Austrian king to their west, and to their south was this ever-expanding threat of the Ottomans. The Ottomans already controlled vast regions of Hungary, and they kept pushing north and pushing north, threatening to overrun the entire Eastern Europe. And Hungary and Transylvania were right at the front lines trying to stop this push. And as a consequence, they were always having to fight for their very survival. Now, the second reality was forced on their society by the first, and that is because of this state of perpetual warfare, Hungary and Transylvania were broken societies. They still functioned, but they didn't function very well. This was not a stable, you know, 40 acres and a mule, good place to raise the children type of land. The best way to picture this, I think, is to think about the Vietnam War, when the U.S. soldiers were coming back from the Vietnam War, sometimes crippled, sometimes with PTSD, very traumatized by that experience. And the United States at the time, the richest country on the entire planet, didn't have the resources or the public will to really take proper care of these men when they came back. So imagine what it must have been like when every man, with almost no exceptions, had to go to war at some time in his life. And in war, they would sustain these crippling injuries, horrible wounds, terrible infections that would leave them maimed, deformed, and unable to support themselves and their family, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Imagine what happened. They'd beg, they'd steal, they'd drink, and they'd die. And they would leave behind starving widows and children who had no support. And so everybody had to work at a very, very young age. A dystopian nightmare, a very broken society because of all the war. Now the third reality is this. Not only was there this battle between the Ottomans and the Christians, there were internal battles in Hungary. Sometimes these were battles between the great houses, between competing interests. Sometimes they were between Protestants and Catholics or Protestants and Protestants of different denominations. Sometimes they were between ethnic groups. Within a single town in Hungary, you could find complete segregation of the population into Austrian or Slovak or Hungarian or Transylvanian people. And most hated and despised of all were the gypsies. The gypsies would be a great topic for some other podcast. These were people from northern India, known as the Roma people. They migrated to Eastern Europe sometime in the 13th century. At the beginning of the 14th century, when the Mongols withdrew from Eastern Europe, the Roma people who were left behind were just enslaved by the Europeans. And the gypsies were treated with contempt and brutally persecuted. So there was a fragmentation within 
the society, even as they were trying to fight against this external enemy. Now, the fourth reality is this. The peasants themselves were treated with total contempt by the nobility. The aristocrats actually held the power of life and death over their servants, even more so than we talked about with Saltykova. It was almost like these servants were a different species. They were like beasts of burden. Peasants could be punished, they could be tortured, and they could even be executed by their aristocratic overlords. And these beatings, tortures, and executions were usually very public. They were a way to make an example to the other peasants that they better fall into line or a similar fate would await them. So Elizabeth Bathory, just like every noble, would have grown up with these public executions being fairly normal. But more on that later. The fifth reality, the final reality I want to talk about, is a very strange feature of this Eastern European society. There was actually a respect for cruelty in that society. They had a cult of savagery. There was a term, karadum, and I can't pronounce it very well, but that's my best attempt. Karadum was the creative use of cruelty on enemies and lessers, and the nobility subscribed to this cult of cruelty. So Vlad Tepes is actually considered a hero, Vlad the Impaler. I mean, sure, his enemies considered him a monster, but the people on his side thought he was a hero. They loved the fact that he would post these Turks up on pikes. This was a society in which compassion and mercy were not valued at all. They were considered weaknesses. They were a liability. If you were going to survive and thrive in a state of perpetual warfare, you had to be willing to inflict pain and suffering on your enemies. So you wonder why this region had such a reputation as the home of, like, evil monsters among the rest of Europe? Well, look no further than this cult of cruelty. So this is the country, this is the environment, this is the attitude into which Elizabeth Bathory is born. The year of her birth is 1560, and she's one of four children. And the family into which she's born is not one of the most powerful families in the region, not one of the most wealthy. It is the most wealthy, powerful family in all of Hungary. She's the niece of the King of Poland. Her mother and father both have brothers, who hold the post akin to the Prime Minister of Transylvania. She's the sister of what would be a Supreme Court judge, the niece of a Lithuanian Grand Duke, and there's a cardinal within her second-degree relatives. Her nephew is the Prince of Transylvania, and he's this kind of dashing Renaissance figure, kind of like a Prince William or Harry, admired by all, very fashionable. The Bathories were richer than their own king. Richer in land, richer in possession, richer in servants. They were loaded. So this is the family into which Elizabeth Bathory is born. And you have to understand, when you're a noble of that rank, even as a child, it is far below your dignity and your station to be disciplined by anyone. So if you think Prince Joffrey on Game of Thrones was a little over the top, then you don't know Elizabeth Bathory. Because she was not punished for anything that she did. And as a consequence of that, of course, you grow up vain and willful, arrogant, and it didn't mitigate her vanity and her arrogance at all when she grew up and was actually considered to be the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom. So she had beauty, wealth, and privilege that we can't even imagine in our day, really. We don't know much about her childhood, but we do know that her father was a brutal man. He was a believer in Karadon, the cult of cruelty. The only story we have from her youth is one that is hard to hear. Depending on who tells it, Elizabeth was either forced to witness this punishment or actually requested to witness the punishment. Either way, it's the same. Her father was punishing a gypsy. I don't know exactly what for, but the gypsy had done something, and Elizabeth Bathory's father wanted him punished. And so what he did is he took a perfectly healthy horse, slit its belly open, stuffed the gypsy into the belly of the horse, up to its neck, and sewed the gypsy into the horse's belly. This was very painful. The beast was still alive. It thrashed around. It writhed on the ground. 
and with only the gypsy's head sticking out, it was pounded, pummeled, and eventually crushed under the weight of the horse until the horse and the gypsy were both dead. So can you imagine this society? Most of Western Europe was starting to be influenced by the ideas of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, but Eastern Europe was still in a dark age as far as human rights went. It was a very violent and very superstitious time. When Elizabeth was 11 or 12, she was betrothed to Ferenc Nadasdi from another aristocratic Hungarian family, almost as wealthy as hers, but not as old and not quite as wealthy. Now, a year or two after her betrothal, Elizabeth turned up pregnant, and it wasn't Ferenc's child. It was the child of a lesser nobleman. So, of course, they had to deal with this. These two great houses were going to be joined, and this inconvenient child couldn't stand in the way. So, Elizabeth actually gave birth to the child. It was then taken away and raised somewhere else. But what Ferenc did to the man who impregnated Elizabeth is instructive for who we're dealing with. In fact, I'm going to call Ferenc Nadasdi Nasty Frank from now on, because Nasty Frank had this nobleman castrated and then torn to pieces by hounds. So it's easy to see that Elizabeth and everyone around her grew up immersed in this culture of extreme ultraviolence. With that inconvenient interlude out of the way, Elizabeth and Nasty Frank were actually married in 1575. Now, Elizabeth's family was a little bit richer and higher in its social standing. So Nasty Frank actually took the name of Bathory, as was the tradition when there was a little asymmetry in the two houses. To give you an idea of how important this wedding was, this was the event of the decade in Eastern Europe. 4,500 guests were invited to their wedding. Imagine the expense, the amount of human labor it took, the food that they had to be given, the entertainment that had to be provided. This was a royal wedding. And you say, oh, it's just a count and countess. But it rivaled and surpassed the wedding of many kings and queens in Europe at the time. Now, one thing that we do know about Elizabeth Bathory is that she adored Nasty Frank. He was a war hero, a man who was feared by enemies, feared by his friends alike, actually. This was a powerful, ruthless man. He had a reputation for hoisting Turks up on pikes, just like Vlad Tepes. Now, here's a little aside, and I have to just put this out there. As far as I can tell, it doesn't seem that this came from Europeans. It actually seems that it came from the Ottoman Turks. They were the first to hoist people up onto pikes after capturing or killing them. So this seems to be a case where the Ottoman Turks' own worm had turned, where they'd been hoisted on their own petard, because these Hungarians and Transylvanians really took it to new levels. But anyway, back to the action. Because of his brutality, because he was such a feared warrior, Nasty Frank actually earned the name the Black Knight of Hungary, who was famous all over the kingdom, beloved all over the kingdom, and beloved in his own household by Elizabeth. So Ferenc, Nasty Frank's life basically involved being gone for several months during the year to fight the Ottomans. And during this time, Elizabeth was actually in charge of running all the affairs of their vast estates and holdings. And she was very capable of this. She was brilliant. She was one of the most educated women in Europe. She spoke and wrote four different languages. And she could run their empire with ruthless efficiency. She arranged marriages, attended social functions, sold and bought land, managed all her servants, hired and fired, entertained nobility. All of this she did brilliantly. She was very capable. So really, we should take time here to tick off her good qualities. First of all, she spoke four languages. That's great. She was very educated. That's great. She had brilliant managerial skills, as we just talked about. That's great. She loved her husband dearly. She was very devoted to her husband, although that devotion did not take conventional forms. And then, from every witness that we have from that time, she loved her children very much. She was a doting, adoring, very loving mother. I don't know if those mitigating factors, the human side of her, makes what she did to her servants better, or if it makes it all that much worse. 
One of the reasons that she was so enamored with her husband is because he actually assisted with her abuses of the servants. Early in their marriage, he taught her a way to stick oil-soaked paper between the toes of the servant girls who were not performing up to task. And then they would light this oil on fire and the poor girl's toes would be burning and she would kick and scream. They called it star kicking. So she learned this sick abusive technique from her husband, Nasty Frank. And even though Nasty Frank is said to have participated and sometimes even killed servants, he also seemed to have been a restraining force on her. But the rumors of abuses at Kashti's castle, where she was staying most of the time, began very early. They began before Nasty Frank even died. And there's rumors about how all the violence started, how she developed her taste for violence and sadism. One of the most repeated is that there was a servant girl who was working on her hair, pulled a little too hard, yanked Elizabeth Bathory's hair. This infuriated her. She turned around and struck with a fist this servant girl right in the nose. Blood poured out of her nose and got all over Elizabeth Bathory's hand. And the rumor is that she was either fascinated by it or thought that it had some kind of a rejuvenating effect on her. And according to this apocryphal story, that started the cycle of violence. Before Ferenc, before Nasty Frank even dies, there's rumors of abuse and even deaths at some of her properties, of which she had very, very many, but primarily at Chechtiche. That's where most of this seems to be happening. Now, starting around the time that Elizabeth Bathory was 41 years old, okay, so we're talking about 1601, her husband starts to develop some mysterious ailment. We really don't know what it was, but he actually ends up dying three years after this starts on the field of battle, but it's a suspicious death. It doesn't seem like he was killed on the field of battle so much as that he died on the 4th of January, 1604. He was 48, and they'd had a successful and by all accounts a happy marriage for 29 years. So at the age of 43 or 44, Elizabeth Bathory is a widow. Now, luckily she's not left alone. And I say that with a full sense of sarcasm because she has, at her beck and call, three or four, depending on the source, very special helpers. We even have the names of some of these special helpers. Three women, Elena Yo, Katarina, and Dorothea. But Dorothea does not show up in every single source. Now these two or three women were said to be very versed in the dark arts. In fact, they might have taught some dark arts to Elizabeth Bathory, but it's so hard to tell if that's a later embellishment in the Western European retelling of her history. But what we do know is that she had a manservant named Fitzko. That was a nickname. Fitzko is essentially her factotum. He assisted her with everything. And by some accounts, he was a dwarf or had some physical anomaly that set him apart when I hear about Fitzko, it's impossible for me not to think about Dracula's assistant, the one that would smash flies and eat them. Creepy little assistant, his factotum named Renfield. There's some thought that Renfield was actually based on the stories of Fitzko, Elizabeth Bathory's factotum. So after Ferenc dies, seems that the wheels came off. All restraint was thrown to the wind by Elizabeth. She and her assistants would lure girls in greater and greater numbers and be less and less careful about hiding what was going on. And the rumors, of course, became more and more lurid and more and more persistent that when girls went in to the castle owned by Elizabeth Bathory, they didn't come out again. They just disappeared and some excuse would be made about where they had gone. And it was finally in 1606, two years after Nasty Frank had died, that a Lutheran minister named Istvan Magyari finally made complaints against her both publicly, so he had the courage to denounce Elizabeth Bathory in public, and also at the court in Vienna, Austria. Elizabeth Bathory was known to frequent Vienna, which was the seat of government that then ruled over Hungary. And the story is told, it just makes your flesh crawl, 
She had a house right down in the middle, in the heart of Vienna, and people could hear things happening in that house as they walked by. In fact, there was a monastery across the street, and the monks became so disturbed by the screams and cries coming from that house that they actually went over and banged on the doors, threw their pots against the doors, tried to get into the house, but nobody opened the doors, and the screaming didn't stop. You get the idea that she was just flaunting her ability to get away with these things. So the complaints came from those monks, they came from the Lutheran ministers, they came from the people in the countryside, and this groundswell of fear and outrage and indignation was just building and building against Elizabeth Bathory. It wasn't until 1610, so four years after she'd been denounced in public by a Lutheran minister, and many years after the rest of the countryside was disturbed, concerned about the disappearance of girls and the sounds coming from the castle, that King Matthias finally acted. So 1610, he assigns Georgi Thurzo, who's a palatine of Hungary. Now, a palatine is a feudal lord, so he would have been equal or even lower in station than Elizabeth Bathory. But the king granted him special commissions, special powers that are only reserved for a sovereign in most cases, to go and investigate what's going on at this castle. But Thurzo was wily. He was smart. He didn't go immediately to the castle and question Elizabeth Bathory. Instead, he hired a couple of notaries and started collecting evidence. His evidence collection began in March of 1610, and these two notaries and Thurzo himself interviewed over 300 people over the course of the next couple of years. So the questioning began in March of 1610, but they had enough evidence by December of 1610 for Thurzo to act, to make a site visit. The reason for this is that Elizabeth Bathory had become more bold and even more careless. The sad fact of the matter is, as long as she was just luring peasants or servants into her castle and they were disappearing, it was mostly overlooked by the nobility. There were complaints, but nobody did a thing about it. But then Elizabeth Bathory became, again, more aggressive in her recruitment. She started luring children of the lesser nobility to what she called the gynaceum, a school for girls, a finishing school of sorts. Forgive me, but I can't help it. It really was a finishing school, because when those girls went in, they didn't come out. That was the end of them. So children of the nobility were now disappearing. And that's why this whole thing had reached critical mass, like we said. On December 26th, the day after Christmas in 1610, Count Georgi Thurzo makes an investigative visit to Kashti's castle, unannounced. Now, Hungary was no paradise at the time. It was a little bit like purgatory, as I've already said. But when he rode up to that castle, he must have thought he'd ridden down into the seventh ring of hell. He writes a letter to his wife and tells her that he and his men encountered dead and dying girls, girls imprisoned, numerous bodies around the castle, that Elizabeth Bathory hadn't even bothered burying or getting rid of the evidence. So they inspect the castle, they gather evidence, they talk to people, and very quickly after that they arrest her four closest confidants, as we already mentioned, Fitzko, Elena Yo, Dorothea, and Katarina. And even though Elizabeth Bathory is not formally arrested because she's just too rich and powerful, She is forced to remain at the castle until the matter can be sorted out. Now, they had already collected quite a bit of witness testimony, so the trial begins just a week later. On the 2nd of January in 1611, the accomplices are put on trial. Again, not Elizabeth Bathory herself, but her accomplices are put on trial. Now, this is the OJ trial of its day. There is a 20-judge panel presided over by a chief judge, the chief judge of all the land. And over 300 witnesses testify in this trial. 35 people a day. And this didn't just include concerned relatives. It included witnesses to her crimes, as well as people who had actually survived. 
That's how careless she was. Some of the people she would torture would actually escape, but they still couldn't get any justice until finally this boiling point was reached and now they could tell their story. Now get this. I don't know how many personal servants Elizabeth Bathory had, but of those personal servants, let's just say there were 40 or 50. That's how rich she was. All but one of her personal servants testified against her at this trial. And along with that, there was quite a bit of physical evidence. They examined skeletons, cadaver parts with marks of injury, tools, and weapons used to commit these crimes. They examined all of it. It must have been the most lurid, sensationalistic trial in history, really, when you think about it. And the testimonies at this trial are just brutal. They're hard to relate to you. But here it goes. According to the reports, since the originals were destroyed, to cover the shame of the aristocracy. So that's how powerful the Bathories were. This whole matter, after it was completed, was buried. All of the documents related to Elizabeth Bathory's crimes, the original court dockets, the original records of witnesses, were destroyed. According to reports taken at that time, Bathory's initial victims were serving girls aged 10 to 14 years old. They were the daughters of local peasants. And most of the time, they would be lured to Chechtiche by the offers of well-paid work, as maids or servants in the castle. You wonder why anyone would go there, but you have to realize what desperate times these were. High-paying work, you just couldn't turn it down. But after a while, as the rumors got worse, nobody would even take that work, and they ended up having to find other ways to get people into the castle. So they would bring these girls to the castle under the auspices of hiring them to be maids, and then Elizabeth Bathory would personally examine each one of them. It's said that she preferred the heavier, stouter, more stocky girls because they could last longer under the conditions that she was about to impose on them. And the atrocities mostly consisted of severe beatings, burning or mutilating hands. They would use hot pinchers or hot coins. She would bite flesh. Elizabeth Bathory herself would take bites out of people, off their faces, arms, other body parts. There was also rumors that she would freeze people to death, starve them to death, just put them in a cage and let them starve. The freezing to death was especially difficult to hear. Girls would be taken outside into the cold and water poured over them until they became an ice sculpture. And this didn't just happen in Chechtiche. It was everywhere that this very well-traveled countess went. Her three or four collaborators mentioned other ways in which girls were tortured. The use of needles under the fingernails and toenails was very common. Elizabeth herself would carry out these tortures, by the way. She wouldn't just have other people do them. And they spoke about how much Elizabeth Bathory loved scissors. In particular, she loved to snip the skin between the fingers and between the finger and thumb with a pair of scissors. They spoke about the ordeal of the cage where girls were hoisted up in metal cages and left there. Once they got into these metal cages, it was even worse, though, because they would be poked and prodded with sharp sticks until they bled to death. And as this was occurring, fits go, and some said Elizabeth herself would scream obscenities, just horrible, vulgar, crass language, at the girls. I mean, I tried to warn you, this is so hard to talk about without just feeling this physical repulsion and this outrage boiling up inside you. So I'll just say one more thing that was fairly commonly reported by witnesses, and that is that Elizabeth Bathory also liked to cover people in honey and kind of anticipating the Apache trick. She would then leave them out, tie them up, and let insects, sounds like ants or bees, attack them until they died. Some of the witnesses, of course, just came to name relatives who had died while they were attending Elizabeth Bathory's gynoceum, her finishing school. Other witnesses just came to say that they had found a body in a ravine or in a ditch or somewhere out in the forest with marks 
of beatings or torture on their bodies. And you can imagine the logistical nightmare it must have been for Elizabeth Bathory and for Fitzgo and her servants to dispose of all these bodies. Some of the tales are that they were kept in the castle. Some were that they were taken out and buried, but when that ran short or when time ran short, they would just take them far away from the castle and just leave them. Now, some of the reports are clearly overblown exaggerations and embellishments. One of the things that could never be established based on the original testimony is that Bathory liked to bathe in the blood of virgins, very commonly said about her and actually gave rise to some vampire legends. But there is no evidence from that time that that's something Elizabeth Bathory did. Forensic psychologists, people who have examined her case, do agree on one thing, and that is the motivation behind Elizabeth Bathory's killing spree. From all of the reports we have, she wasn't like the Salty Chica. There wasn't an element of vengeance or payback or resentment to her exploits. Instead, for her, it was a turn-on. She was a sadist. She wanted to hurt girls for fun. And since she had unlimited, unchecked power, she could do it. And she just did it. And this is where I come back to the fact that she loved her children. She loved her husband. And to me, that almost makes it that much worse. If this was an insane person who had no idea what she was doing, the rightness or wrongness of her actions, she wasn't able to connect to other human beings, something like that, then that would be one thing. But she loved it. She knew these people were in pain. That's what she wanted. It was their terror and their pain that gave her the thrills that she was looking for. As I said, this is evil by any criteria that I can even imagine. And now here's the difference between being one of the richest noble women in the entire world and being a servant. The four servants are put on trial and they are convicted. Fitzgo is beheaded. The women have their fingers pulled off and burned in front of them, and then the rest of their body is thrown onto the fire. Elizabeth Bathory is never even tried for her crimes, but it's not like she got off scot-free. She was actually confined to Cashtees. What we don't know is exactly the conditions in which she was confined. Some say that the room was boarded up in which she spent the rest of her life, that it was walled off completely with just a little slit to pass food through a lot like Daria Saltikova. But it's hard to say because other sources say she just couldn't leave the castle. She still had access to good food, plenty of wine, company with others, but couldn't leave the castle. I don't know what the truth is. But we do know that she didn't live long after the trial of her accomplices. She died about three years later in 1614. She told her guard that she was a little cold one night before going to bed, and the next morning she didn't respond, and he found her dead. And so ended the life of one of the most vile creatures ever to walk the face of the earth, Elizabeth Bathory. And now for the controversy. Several authors have actually argued that Elizabeth Bathory was the victim of a conspiracy. Some have argued that the proceedings against her were largely politically motivated due to her extensive wealth, her ownership of large areas of land in Slovakia and Hungary, and that after the death of her husband, she wasn't able to protect herself from these conspiring men. And that theory is consistent with the fact that there was quite a bit of infighting in Hungary at the time. There was religious and political and inter-family conflicts like I already talked about. So that's one theory. Another historian has pointed out that King Matthias himself owed Elizabeth Bathory a vast sum of money. And that is thought to play into the conspiracy against her. But of course, there are counter-arguments against these conspiracy theories. 
And the first is that they are just revisionist conspiracy theories. Everybody knew at the time what was happening. It wasn't a great big secret. King Matthias waited a long time to even do anything about it. That's how afraid he was of the Bathory family. And it wasn't just Elizabeth Bathory. She was well connected. If somebody was trying to steal her land, they'd have to get it from the entire Bathory clan. And that wasn't very likely. And then there's the fact that the stories of her murders and her brutality are verified by the testimony of 300 plus witnesses, as well as survivors, as well as physical evidence, bodies, dead and dying girls, etc. And finally, there's this sobering fact. Historians combing through records that are still extant are able to trace a pattern of disappearances and deaths of young women in the areas that Elizabeth Bathory was staying. So people know where she was, when she was there, and historians can actually identify a pattern of disappearances of young females. Now that's incredible. I want you to think about what that means. That a serial killer is prolific enough to shift the demographics in the region where she's staying. She's like a plague. She's like a natural disaster visiting the area. And the evidence of that plague that was Elizabeth Bathory can still be seen today. So I have yet to see how these conspiracy theorists explain the coincidence, if that's what they want to call it, as well as the testimony of 300 plus witnesses. That's pretty elaborate as far as conspiracies go. It's just a little too taxing on my credulity. So even if a witness or two here or there fabricated, exaggerated, or made something up, the overwhelming mountain of evidence is that Elizabeth Bathory was a very prolific serial killer. One of the people at trial testified to seeing a book in which Elizabeth Bathory recorded the names of her victims. And having gone through that book, she said that she had counted the names of over 600 victims. Is that an exaggeration? Well, probably. But let's think if the number is one-tenth that much, this is still an incredibly evil person. So there you go. Now you know the story of two of the worst people in all of history, Daria Saltikova and Elizabeth Bathory, the Salty Chica and Bloodbath herself. And so, like I recommended to you before, after hearing these tales, go take a shower, or go sit out in the sunshine, talk to normal people, interact in healthy ways, and just try to blow this all off. Because it's not going to get a whole lot easier, although it might not be quite as lurid as the tales of these two women. We are going to be covering the sixth worst person in the history of the world. And if these two are only eight and seven, you can imagine what that is going to be like. So... Thank you for listening. This is the Know Thyself podcast, the podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong, again, resurrecting sense and meaning from the dust of a billion factoids. We'll see you next time.